As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. The C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. Hello and welcome to the show that brings you the thought and theology of C.S. Lewis. This week we are bringing you part two of a special programme which was originally broadcast in 2019 on Unbelievable. Justin Briley hosted a discussion about the inklings between Mark Vernon and Malcolm Geith. Mark's book, A Secret History of Christianity, Jesus, The Last Inkling and the Evolution of Consciousness, explores his own search for Christian faith in light of the theology of members of the Inklings. Poet-theologian Malcolm Geith engages with Mark on this view of Jesus as the epicentre of a new phase of consciousness and the future of Christian faith. To listen to other episodes of Unbelievable, check out our website where you can also find lots of great articles as well as more C.S. Lewis content. Visit premierunbelievable.com. For now, here's part two of Justin's conversation with Mark Vernon and Malcolm Geith. Got a really interesting discussion for you today on the show. Uh, Looking at uh, C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien and Owen Barfield, how the Inklings made sense of faith today. Uh, my guests are Mark Vernon and Malcolm Geith, and uh, we've heard a little bit about the history of the Inklings, this group of academics, thinkers and writers who met regularly through the 30s and fi- to the 50s in, in Oxford, and um, the, the most famous members, of course, being Tolkien and Lewis. But uh, Owen Barfield was a significant sort of influence on both of them and others, and has been a significant influence on Mark Vernon, uh, one of my guests on today's show, who... Until relatively recently, I think, Mark, um, would, would have described yourself as, as agnostic. Um, I, I don't know if you have a label for what you are now. I mean, are you happy to call yourself a Christian now? What what Do you just prefer not to use labels? Yeah, where possible? that's fine. I mean, if, if we get a chance to talk about what that means, of course, that's always helpful, which <laughs> yes, we do. So yeah. that's great. Yeah. Well, that's what we're doing today, I suppose. Um, and, and obviously, we, we've just heard in that last section malcolm sort of help, giving a sort of helpful kind of history almost of of how um barfield in his thinking sort of saw jesus as this this conduit for a for a, for a radical change and and um almost the instantiation i suppose of this new way of understanding the world around us and that the divine um having you know become very personalized now reaches out again into the world and, and fills it uh, in the person of jesus so that's all i just find that all utterly fascinating the question is um i I can hear a lot of people saying well that sounds great but where where does it leave us in terms of you know reality let's say it was jesus the son of god did he was you know did he change reality was was somehow history pivoted on this unique person in that very time and place uh, in a small you know corner of the world so what, what's your take on that how, how do you kind of does does this all center down ultimately on on one individual i think you can certainly 
point to quite concrete things that start to become possible to experience and think about in the first centuries after Jesus that result um, from the life of Jesus. So, for example, there was no notion of free will in the ancient world. And it's about the second century with Justin Martyr um, that the notion of free will starts to be really talked about, as if an individual can make free choices in life um, and choose to know who they really are. Um, that was the sort of older sense. Um, so free will now is taken to be absolutely fundamental to who we are as human beings. Um, but it, it has a history, and the history is deeply connected to the notion of Jesus. A slightly more flippant example is that um, the notion of plagiarism starts to come in as well. So um, it was pretty standard in the ancient world to, say, call your text after Plato, even if you weren't Plato, because you saw yourself in the Platonic tradition, this much more collective sense of what it is to be a human being, which Malcolm was talking about. Um, but plagiarism starts to pop up, and poets start saying, wait a minute, did you really write that? This isn't <laughs> quite you, it's actually me. So that sense of being an individual with a kind of autonomy starts to emerge as well. So you, you can look to things like that. Um, in a way, a more direct experience for me um, that I think I can see comes about because of what Jesus um, brought um, actually comes from psychotherapy. I, I work as a psychotherapist actually now. And um, one of the things that's really fascinating about psychotherapy is in a way, the effort to help people break out of a kind of two-dimensional experience of life. Um, you know, for various reasons, people can get locked into um, a very flat earth, you might say, and it causes them a lot of trouble often and, and causes a lot of suffering. And in what you're trying to do in psychotherapy, I think, is to ease up on that so that you can start to move into a three-dimensional world. And that three-dimensional world, you particularly notice it in the therapy room quite tangibly when time starts to take on a different uh, shape. Um, so, you know, if you know you're in the flat earth when the clock is ticking and you're watching the clock and five minutes feels like half an hour and so on, um, and uh, you're, you're sort of struggling to, to work out how to shift things in the room. But the minute time starts to become a bit more timeless... Um, you know you're sinking to a, deep, a deeper level of what it is to be human. And I think that increasingly that level is moving away from, as it were, the, the, the material human being, the biological human being, you might say, and moving into the spiritual dimensions of who we are, the soulful dimensions of who we are. Um, and ultimately, I think um, it's even possible to to uh, discern the kind of eternal dimensions of who we are. Um, and again, you feel this quite uh, tangibly in psychotherapy because one of the things you realise is that something that happened to you 40 or 50 years ago, even 60 or 70 years ago, if you're old enough, is quite as alive inside you now as it was when it first happened. Um, this is sort of you know, mm. psychological mm. fact now that how we treat very young children impacts them for all their lives. Um, and for me, I, my own psychotherapy, you know, which I, I, I went through as part of my training, um, that realisation helped me with my own struggles. But it was also a spiritual realisation that this timeless sense, this divine sense, um, is actually all around us and we can realign ourselves to it. Um, and again, I think that Jesus first... Um, sort of brought that into the world in a full and possible sense because it's a kind of wisdom it's not just like something you need to be told it's a sort of practice it's an unfolding um, and it, it is sort of passed down the down the, the generations I think because you first get a whiff of it when you half sense it in someone else I think mm. this is what it means to be a mystic mm. or to mm. be a saint mm. and that you, you you get you get a smell of it and you want it and then you have to do the work on yourself and gradually it unfolds and reveals mm. itself to you I think the saying of Jesus that might speak particularly into what um, 
Mark's just said, particularly about time and about the kind of consciousness that Jesus offers to those who are in him and he's in them, is the very mysterious saying, you know, in St. John 8, I think, where he says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. And, and they say, oh, you're not even 40 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And he says, he says, before Abraham was, I am. Now, that's a very, I mean, it's very interesting playing with tenses, isn't it? Before Abraham was, I am. It's not like I used to be or I was then. Now, as we know, he's actually riffing on the divine name that, you know, Yahweh, I tell the children of Israel, yeah. says to Moses, I that I am has sent you. And he seems to be linking to the idea that one of the things that God is, is in his, God is his person, he's I am. And that our own ability to say I am, our own ability to be a person in the present, is it, well, is given by God. It sort of wells up from God. It, it, we're, we're made in his image. We're made in, in his image. And part of the image is the power to say, I am. Right. But Jesus clearly says it in a very big way when yeah. you kind of capital letters and they pick up stones, you know, to stone mm. him. I mean, uniquely, you might say, Jesus is saying that Yahweh, that I am, is standing in front of you. Mm. But he's also saying to everybody who follows him, you too can, in some sense participate in this let my father will come and dwell in you you know if you see and like he says to the woman at the well you know i will give you a well of water welling mm, up within mm, you mm. to eternal life yeah eternal life doesn't mean actually necessarily going on forever it means beyond time altogether mm, mm. and i would say that one of the characteristics of a certain form of christian mysticism right the way through history um sometimes it's more more hidden than others depending on the culture that it's flourishing in is people in in Christ contemplating Christ's aliveness now suddenly feeling that the depth of who they are in him is untouched by time is is already you know it's like Paul when he says you have died and your life is hidden with hidden. Christ I was about to say God. the exact same verse is what so, reminded so me of it, the yeah. trouble is I think in a weird way, even though there's lots of stuff about Owen Barfield and anthroposophy and stuff that Lewis had problems with, mm. and I would probably have problems yeah. with, there's something about the way he writes that makes you thrilled and you say, wait a minute, he's talking about a real Christian mystical experience here. And he's not just talking about it in a pious way. Mm. He's saying that's an actual objective reality that anybody can have because that eternity is around, you know, and that's very exciting. Yeah. Does, is this sort of the way you've begun to conceive of your own, for want of a better word, relationship with Christ or um, ability to to engage with, with, with Christ as the centre of reality in that way? Yeah, very much. I mean, in a way... The psychotherapy to just to mention that again that's that's a lot of personal stuff you know kind of working mm. out my neuroses and so on and and the impact of my immediate past and um, but what completes it is the sense that it doesn't actually just stop with me and in some of the way some way uh what psychotherapy enables you to do is not just be caught up in your own stuff but begin to be able to put that to one side create a bit of a sense of space um, and see that there's a whole lot more that becomes um, available to you uh, you can become aware of um, that in a way is is much bigger than you is this mm. return to um, a different kind of participation and you know Barfield called it final participation it's interesting to hear you mention the psychotherapy thing because about a year ago I was contacted by someone who's um came on the show a long time ago as a very sort of materialist atheist um but who was involved in uh, psychology uh, and that sort of thing and um and he got in touch uh said i, I didn't really know who else to ask this of justin but uh, he'd gone through a, a, 
an emotional crisis of sorts really where he thought he sort of had the world worked out essentially and the way things work but he'd done something to um an ex-partner that he felt utterly ashamed of and suddenly his well thought out ways of understanding the world no longer seemed to, to make sense because he and i think he's been somewhat influenced by people like jordan peterson and others who talk about the malevolence that somehow is there at the heart of people and he saw that expressed in something he couldn't control and he couldn't give an account for it in in the way you know the, the way he thought the world worked and and it it begun to lead him on a quest that sounds a little bit like what you guys have been d- describing of there's more to me than the simple the synapses and brain working and psychology that sometimes it gets reduced to and i need to find a bigger a bigger explanation for this and, and why i am the way i am and, and why I, I would do that thing that i just find so utterly which i can't believe i did you know essentially and and it just strikes me that that sometimes people do reach this point and it's that where they realize that the 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 kind of the metaphysic that has up to that point given them some kind of explanation of the world no longer seems to do the job in terms of who who they are and that sort of thing and i, I suspect very often this isn't just an intellectual journey but an an emotional one for, for many people i mean completely i mean i think that the intellectual rationalization follows on from the direct experience yeah. and where in the medieval period someone might have gone on pilgrimage if it had an experience like that you know visited a shrine um done taken time out of life in that way i think it's increasingly common now for people to turn to some sort of psychology or psychotherapy um, in order to go on this inner journey in that way. Um, I mean, I I think there's a lot of evidence for it around and about in our culture, the need for this. You you mentioned Jordan Peterson, the Jordan Peterson phenomenon, Um, but uh, you might look to Buddhism as well and these kind of inner practices, um, which in a way it's a sort of technique um, that you kind of learn to pay attention to inner life in order that inner life can then show itself. Um, And for me, that's been very helpful purely at a sort of practical level learning the technique mm. but it's again it's led me sort of back into a new appreciation of christianity and what that might be about i, I was going to ask as well then from, from your point of view malcolm a lot of people will will hear what's being said but certain sort of um concerns will be raised yeah. this sounds an awful lot like eastern mm-hmm. mysticism yeah. uh, new agey stuff deepak chopra or whatever yeah. and yeah. and we've all been told that's all a bit dodgy and we shouldn't yeah. really you know go too near that stuff but how is what you're describing as this kind of understanding of Christianity and Christ distinctively Christian as opposed okay. to a sort of a kind of we're all part of a universal consciousness and yeah. uh, and that kind of thing? I think it, well, I think first of all, uh, you can use the language of, of, of that there is consciousness first, that there mm. is I am and that we are given our consciousness. That language is, in a sense, it's either the case or it isn't, and it seems to be the case. is Where it becomes Christian is... is Clearly, where it focuses onto uh, onto the person of Christ, you know. I mean, the classic statement, you know, in Corinthians would be, you know, when this very question about the wise man and the debater mm-hmm. of the age, he says, "I resolved uh, to know nothing among you save Christ Jesus, um, the power and crucified, the power of God and the wisdom of God." Very interesting. So we are talking about power and wisdom here. So I would say, for a thing to be distinctively Christian, we have to take all those big fields and say, yes, but how does that come to us in Christ? And the thing that allowed Lewis to stay friends with and feel in Christian fellowship with Barfield, in spite of the fact that Barfield's anthroposophy and Rudolf Stein, I mean, Rudolf Stein has got some pretty weird ideas, (laughs) but both Stein and, and but Barfield specifically really thought that in Christ Jesus, that divine consciousness 
is is made fully available within a human life and changes things and is a turning point not just mm. for us as individuals but in a sense for the cosmos the other thing i would throw in in terms of keeping why i i mean why i still still kind of uh, stay in conversation with barfield even though i don't mm. you know agree with everything that he said i think there's my f worry about barfield is that his feeling of your change of consciousness and that you've got to involve in this it, that can become as it were a work right. of salvation mm -hmm. you can become like oh i've got to get my consciousness I've got to right achieve you know, a certain level of you know, enlightenment and yes, i think yes. there's and i yeah. i i want more room um for the divine action okay but so that's my reservation but one thing that i i think is really important about lewis and barfield and lewis's friendship with barfield is that it's not just yes it's about an emotional change yes it's about conversion and all those things but for both men it was also always about reason about the search philosophically for truth about what is the case so there's a wonderful poem of c.s lewis's where he's he's struggling with the fact that he's got this great capacity for logic on the other on the one hand mm. and he's got mm. this deeply imaginative emotional life and he he says oh one of them is like the goddess athene you know and the other is like the goddess demeter mm. in in athens and he says you know tempt not athene but wound not in her fertile pains demeter and he says oh who will reconcile in me both maid and mother who made a, make a concord of the depth and height who make imagination's dim exploring touch ever report the same as intellectual sight now that was also a quest for barfield and however different they were in other ways both men wanted something which was not only imaginatively satisfying but rationally could be mm. shown to be tenable yes both men thought the meeting of reason and imagination in an event that you can get hold of with both sides of your mind happens in the christ event mm. now one of them may be much more oddly <laughs> mystical than the other and the other may be prone to what lewis in a bit of self-parody called my bow wow dogmatism <laughs> but at the end they both felt that the resolution of these big different ways of seeing things the quest for an objective truth the realization of a subjective transformation that christ was the way those two things came together somehow managed to, to bring them together I mean, a, cl a clinch word for me is yeah. the word incarnation i right. don't know if you've quite said it yeah. yet but mm. this is the meaning of the incarnation it is something that happened two thousand years ago but what that facilitates is the possibility for incarnation now um, and this has always been picked up in the in the christian mystical tradition um, i think that we were sort of after the Reformation when a lot of that became suspect um, amongst the reformers. Inner life particularly became problematic again. Um, I understand this now as like another turn of this development of inner life. It's like another um, moment of disenchantment with the world. When, and when you say this, do you mean sort of in the, the post-rationalism enlightenment world we live in where everything's been explained in a kind of by atoms and molecules kind of in the way that lewis had kind of adopted his atheism but, yeah very we're much now, so. we're now swinging back to a kind of okay that story's not going to do enough for us yeah so we're rediscovering like you say about the story of the person who contacted you we're rediscovering things about ourselves, often in very painful ways so this is the dying and rising i think that, mm. that that's another reason why it's very christian is because it's always dying and rising it's not just as it were a step into a perfect future um there is a real struggle here there's a real passion here um so both the incarnation and the passion and um, the two pivotal parts mm. of the christian story are absolutely essential and, I, and to my you know barfield completely bought into that he really saw that 
what, yeah. what do you think of yourself as more a Barfield than Lewis then at this point Mark in terms of the way you engage Christianity I do I mean it's partly just a sort of question of taste uh, I've always been a more a Tolkien man than a Lewis man you know <laughs> the Lord of the Rings uh, really got me the, the Narnia stories kind of interested me is that because does Lewis just lay it on more thick with the Narnia stories and, and Tolkien never kind of has to very explicitly give the 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 correlation the analogy between christ and gandalf or whatever but it's it's there if you're willing to see it sort of thing my suspicion is that lewis never quite fully trusted the imagination as truth bearing (laughs) he he certainly moved on from his earlier life where he thought it could add color to things Mm. um but at times he lets himself go into it but on the whole Mm. i think that he's just that little bit where maybe this is the bow wow dogmatism (laughs) side of him um whereas i think you know tolkien and barfield really trusted the imagination they did see it as the spirit speaking to them what what's your view on on that differentiation between yeah i mean i, I, I know that lewis a, and tolkien had some differences and yeah, views about too. about the way to do this i they? think i think that's a very fair comment i think lewis, there are definitely two sides to lewis and even though in the end i think he did know that christ reconciled his reason and imagination he had quite a strong sense of the fall mm-hmm. quite a strong sense of the way in which all these faculties in us are disordered and as it were facing the wrong direction and he was much more afraid i think than barfield was that the imaginative stuff which could of course potentially bring truth might also deceive and therefore he always wanted to as it were hold it to account Mm. in a particular way barfield i think trusted much more in in if you like the lord the spirit you know shaping things for us um it's interesting looking i had i wrote the the chapter on um c.s lewis as a poet for the for the cambridge companion to c.s lewis so i really got into lewis's poetry mm. and I, one of the things that occurred to me as i read it was that lewis is much much more barfieldian as a poet right it's almost as though when he allows himself to be a poet <laughs> um you know He's he he's, uh, he his imagination is able to imagine what original participation might have felt Did, like. Was there a poem like. that you had in mind yeah, for that? Yeah, I was just I, I was. Uh, there's a wonderful poem of his um, called "The Adam at Night," mm. in which Lewis is basically imagining what it would have been like to have been an unfallen human being, genuinely, as it were, close to God. In there, and I, as I read it, I thought this is like a perfect description of what Barfield's. original participation is you know the sense Mm. would have felt Mm. like so his the idea is that adam doesn't you don't need sleep before the fall okay so this is a description of adam as it were altering his mode of consciousness to partake of the whole earth to have a kind of planetary consciousness Mm. which you know sounds very kind of new (laughs) but this is lewis (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. channeling his inner barfield i think it's beautiful it goes like this he the he here is adam right Mm. he would lie relaxed enormous under a sky starry as never since he would set ajar the door of his mind into him thoughts would pour other than days he rejoined earth his mother he melted into her nature gradually he felt as though through his own flesh the elusive growth the hardening and spreading of roots in the deep garden in his veins the wells filling with the silver rains 
and thrusting down, far under his rock crust, finger-like, rays from the heavens that probed, bringing to bloom the gold and diamond in his dark womb. The seething central fires moved with his breathing. Isn't that amazing? It is. It's like Beautiful. feeling earth consciousness. Mm. Having a, now, then, then in the poem that finishes in the morning, they wake up and they become more distinctively human again and right. walk in the garden. Yeah. But for a while, because they are, as it were, mm. they're the consciousness and intelligence arisen physically out of the earth that God has put into the earth to be conscious for it. Now, those are all pretty Barfieldian ideas. And I think, I think when Lewis is in the mode where he's either imagining before the fall or beautifully imagining the kingdom restored, mm. then he really lets his Barfield do, out. Do, do you, as a, in where you stand now on Christianity, Mark, have, have a, an understanding or concept of the fall in that way, that there's some sense in which we, we have been if you like cut off from this this original participation or whatever it you know word you want to use and and in what sense does christ open the door to i suppose a restoration of of that relationship yeah i mean i pick up on the christian tradition that can in this strange way say oh happy fall mm. um that um there was something in god's uh, uh wisdom that actually um became possible because of the fall um a slightly less esoteric way of putting it would be to say that it's when we become fallen that we become individuals. It's when we when we experience, um, maybe to a small degree, maybe to a large degree, our sense of cut offness from God, if that's what the fall is, um, then we get a sense of ourselves um, through that experience of alienation and lostness, of falling short, of limitation. Um, but it doesn't stop there. Um, and you know that fall can lead to redemption um so that it, it, it's part of this process of both knowing you're an individual but knowing you can become an individual that's fully transparent again to the divine but with all the benefits of being an individual and and and, and what role does christ play in that because in a if you like standard understanding you know doctrinally you, you, we would t speak of christ's death and resurrection as being the, the, the events that kind of when we trust in it will bring us into that relationship with god now I don't know if that kind of is, is in any way translated into your, your kind of take on Christianity and, and, and what role those particular aspects of Christ's life obviously uh, have, have to play. I mean, I think the trusting in it is a first step, but the really knowing it is the full step. Right. That's what it is to be converted, I think. And there is a kind of moment, you might say, of conversion where you trust it. But that's just the beginning of your conversion. And um, Christ is called set the second Adam by Paul. And I think that's a deep, deep insight into the nature of Jesus, um, which both brings all that the fall was um as it were into the present but then realizes the other side of the fall which is the return to the divine which is um to, to know god once more this is a good moment to just pause again and uh, go to another break and we'll be able to wrap up this really interesting conversation uh, between my guests mark vernon and malcolm geit on the show today if you want to uh, read more about this mark's new book is called a secret history of christianity jesus the last inkling and the evolution of consciousness i'll make sure there are links to both my guests as well uh, from today's show you might want to check out some of malcolm's recent stuff as well uh, he's got volumes of poetry available and mariner a voyage with samuel taylor coleridge was the big book that came out a couple of years ago uh, on the, uh, the, the, the a huge sort of look at the that famous poem and the life of Samuel Taylor Coleridge. But um, we'll continue and uh, finish off today's discussion in a short moment's time. 
It's been such an interesting time talking about Lewis, Tolkien, Owen Barfield, the Inklings, making sense of faith with Mark Vernon and Malcolm Geit on today's show. Uh, again, there's links to both of them from the show page if you want to find out more. Uh, MarkVernon.com. Uh, you can find out more about the book there. Uh, it's called A Secret History of Christianity. MalcolmGeit.com. Uh, Geit spelled G-U-I-T-E. Uh, if you want to find out about, more about Malcolm's work and so on. But um, I, I've, I've sort of... This has opened up new information to me, new, you know, about the, the journey that Barfield and Lewis and Tolkien went on, but, but which just seems to key into a lot of what's going on currently in the present sort of cultural conversation between people like Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris and others who are talking about in a post-Christian materialistic age, how do we get meaning? What's, you know, the fact that people are flocking to these debates and talks by these, you know, intellectuals um, makes me feel like there is something there. Pe- people um, are still feeling like uh, I-, I can't be satisfied and just piling on more technology uh, more ability to amuse ourselves isn't ultimately going to do it um and so so do you feel barfield and, and what you've been talking about in your book here mark has a message for the church today and how we're going to engage this this generation which is if you like is a you know getting on for 100 years on now from from when barfield and lewis and others were putting their finger on these issues in their in their age yeah i do and it, it comes in um with people like peterson and sam harris um I mean, you might just observe that it's often consciousness that they're talking about. Yes. And it may be what is the nature of consciousness. That's sort of the objective side of it, if you like. Um, but it's also um, what is our experience of what it is to be human and how might that change? Um, you know, so Peterson, um, he says many things, but quite a common theme uh, in what he says is you've got to take responsibility for your own life. And for me, that feels like this taking in um and and trying to get some account some fuller awareness of what's going on for you in your in inner life in your interiority because that's always the first step to discovering there's more than just your interiority um that so it's why trying to speak the truth about yourself has always been realized to be a way of finding a cure um for your for your trouble um because it actually enables you to see much more than just your trouble Mm. Um, it's it's often very painful and very difficult and takes a while. But and, and what what would this look like then in terms of I don't know an average Christian or church girl? What 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 changes at this point in their their the way they communicate Christianity, the the way they reach that generation who are obviously on that search. Yeah, I would like to see um, the church get much more into personal transformation. Okay. I put it like that. I think the Church of England, certainly the church which I know the best, is, is very, very good at things like social justice. It completely understands that, the kind of moral imperative of the gospel. Um, but what, for me, it often falls short um, is uh, providing the context and also the discernment, the intellectual engagement that helps people to really develop their inner life um, and to know that um, the incarnation can happen in them um, as much as it happened in the story that they celebrate around Jesus. So it's got, I think there's a, sh- there's a shift away from a kind of um, the moral impact of the gospel um, more to what always was the mystical tradition. Again, I think this has sort of got rather mm. lost since the Reformation. Um, it's a very deep um, and wonderful tradition, it, but it was ripped out in 10 years in this country right. at the Reformation yeah. with the closure of the religious houses. That's not surprising. It's a sort of trauma. But I do feel that the broader culture now is telling the churches in a way that people want this they want to recover this sense of inner life this mystical tradition and christianity has got the full resources to unpack that for people yeah Yeah. absolutely i mean i think that's there uh in again i mean we're quoting john's gospel a lot it's interesting which is the kind of mystical gospel but 
you know, Nicodemus going, well, like, what exactly do I have to do? You know, give me the task-oriented thing, you know. And Jesus using this extraordinary language, saying you must be born again, which is one thing to say. But often you get, you get, that phrase is used and was in the States used as a badge of a certain kind of Christianity, I'm born again. Mm. But actually, Jesus says you must be born again of water and the Spirit. Now, that's these flowing things that sustain all life, the thing you breathe. It's a process. It's a change. And, you know, it's taking what's out there, these beautiful flowing things in the world, and realizing they can be in here. It's, so I think there's a constant invitation to, um, to sort of personal um, transformation. And I agree with Mark that we need to do that. I also do think that we need to be a bit more upfront about being intellectually serious about the questions. Okay. Like... One of the things that I think we sometimes do, I see this in some, you know, in universities, um, where particularly the more kind of conservative Christian groups mm. um, are almost saying to people, forget about your questions, here's my answers. Right. Um, and one of the things I see chaplaincy is doing is is um, is saying, let's stay with the question for quite a long time. Mm. What is it we're after? I mean, I, I'm not so familiar with the Jordan Peterson stuff, but I do know that this question of meaning... Has been around a long time. Has been around. Mm. So uh, there's an essay by Barfield, which I think is one of the best ways into Barfield. It's called The Rediscovery of Meaning. There's a, that's now been published again um, by Barfield's grandson, also called Owen Barfield. It's really weird. I once got a message on, on Cambridge said, Owen Barfield wants to speak to you. And I, <laughs> yes, I, get, I get emails yeah. from Owen Barfield. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I, he, wrote this in the, he wrote this in the 60s, right? In the late 50s yes. of the last century. But f- listen to how contemporary this feels. Go on. Amid all the menacing signs that surround us in the middle of this 20th century, perhaps the one which fills thoughtful people with the greatest foreboding is the growing general sense of meaninglessness. It is this which underlies most of the other threats. How is it that the more able man becomes to manipulate the world to his advantage, the less he can perceive any meaning in it? That's a really sharp question. I mean, if I was a young atheist or agnostic and somebody of any faith openly said that, I'd be interested in the conversation. Right. Yeah. And maybe just to add to that, I think there's a reason why consciousness is often at the nub of these questions. You know, what is consciousness? Because it's almost like it's like the grit in the materialist shell mm-hmm. um, that won't. Be, won't won't go away won't but might form explained. the pearl as yeah, it yeah, were yes yeah yeah, yeah. 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 fascinating stuff. look I, i've just so enjoyed this conversation uh both of you Ma- malcolm and mark thank you so much for taking the time to to come in um obviously a good starting point for for continuing to, to look into this uh, secret history of christianity jesus the last inkling and the evolution of consciousness by mark vernon i think you have provided a, a, an endorsement as well uh, i have yeah malcolm. i think it's a, i think it's a very good book i mean there's lots of course i want to have the conversation in a way i think for example my friendship with mark there's a little bit of an echo in a smaller way between the, the Lewis Barfield friendship. Right. You're Just more as the Lewis, Barfield, more I'm, the Barfield. Yeah, Barfield was more <laughs> left field than Lewis. But I think I want, I've endorsed this book and I want to keep this conversation open. Right. Because Mark is putting his finger on something really important for the church, I think. Hmm. And even though, I mean, you were a priest and I'm still a priest, so there's a difference. <laughs> I'm, I'm hanging on in there with, <laughs> with organized Christianity, you know. Um, and you, you've set it aside for it, well, stepped aside for it. But I still think what you're on about here is, is something central to the renewal of the church. 
Very good. Thank you both for being with me. Uh, it's been fascinating, uh, as always. But um, if you want to find out more, uh, there is uh, links to both my guests, Mark Vernon and Malcolm Geit, from today's uh, show, premierchristianradio.com forward slash unbelievable. Uh, for the moment, uh, Mark and Malcolm, thank you very much for being with me today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to a special edition of the C.S. Lewis podcast, which was originally recorded in 2019. Don't forget to visit the Premier Unbelievable website where there are lots of great articles and podcasts. Visit premierunbelievable.com. You can also register there for bonus content, a free ebook, and our regular updates. That's premierunbelievable.com. Thank you for listening and see you next time.